Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. If you had a long weekend, hopefully you had a good one. A bit busier, it seems, as more people getting back to work. Teachers back in classrooms today, students back later this week. We are going to take a look at how people are feeling with the pandemic continuing and really looking at how Canadians are feeling today compared with how you might have been feeling a couple of months ago. And that is why we have brought on our first guest, Mario Canseco, who is the president of Research Co. He is with us on the line. Mario, great to have you back on the program. Great to be here, Jill. Thanks for having me. I, I like that it's kind of taking the pulse of Canadians and asking Canadians, how are you feeling about the pandemic? Do you have a gloomier view than maybe you did a couple of months ago? What did you find? Well, we definitely see that happening. When we asked in June, at the start of the summer, we had 49% of Canadians who told us that they thought that the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic was behind us. And it made a lot of sense back then. We had lower cases, particularly here in Western Canada. We were flattening the curve. The situation was definitely better than it is now. Here we find ourselves just a few days before kids are going back to school, people back into their offices. Uh, and the level of um, support, if you will, for this idea has dropped dramatically. Now it's only 37% of Canadians who think that the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic is behind us. So uh, definitely not uh, as buoyant as we were at the start of the summer. Uh, And what does it look like uh, for British Columbians, maybe compared to the rest of the country? Where are we on on this? Well, uh, we are at a very fascinating conundrum here in BC because we are more likely to believe that the worst of the pandemic lies ahead. 61% of us feel that way. The numbers are lower everywhere else in the country. Atlantic Canada, 42%, Ontario, 40%. So we are, in a way, more pessimistic about where we're heading because of the pandemic. But we also have the highest level of support for what the government of BC has been doing. Uh, 83% of BC residents say that they are satisfied with how our government has dealt with this issue significantly higher number than what we see in Ontario, Quebec, and Alberta. So we seem to be happy with some of the choices that the government has made, but we also look at the numbers and are feeling that the situation is going to get worse. Uh, You asked people as well about support for a requirement to wear a mask or a face covering when we're in those scenarios, when you're inside, when you're in places where you can't distance. The support for that was quite high. It's incredibly high. You know, it's it's not usual to get 85% of Canadians to say that they want something done. And on this particular issue, it's there. There's 85% of people across Canada who want all customers or visitors who are entering an indoor premise to wear a mask or a face covering. We asked the same question earlier this week in the United States. 90% of Americans believe that that is the right course of action. So it's almost universal across North America to do something like this. And it's actually... Fascinating in the sense that the federal government decided not to allow uh, the American border to be open. Ninety percent of uh, Canadians like that idea. They implemented this mandatory quarantine or isolation period for travelers who are arriving into the country, also 90 percent. So it's uh, there's definitely an appetite from Canadians uh, to follow a guideline, whether it's a local guideline, something that is provincial or even something that is federal that will tell them wear a mask if you want to leave this behind us. And not a huge surprise when we're talking about the border. That's been kind of the the, the feeling about keeping the border closed, that, that keep it closed. That's fine. And, and we'll deal with that down the road. But you also ask people about kids going back to school. And that's been a bit more, uh, to say the least, it's been a bit more of a divisive issue. 
it is very complex because what we see here in a way, especially when you're looking at the numbers uh, in specific provinces of the country, uh, there are lingering problems that are definitely showing themselves right here. Uh, the highest level of disagreement with allowing K-12 students to go back to in-class learning is in Ontario at 48%. They've had a lot of difficulties with the teachers, also very high in Saskatchewan and Manitoba at 56%. Um, the numbers are just not there in a place like the Maritimes, for instance, where they have managed to lower their number of cases. And there are 64% of people who say, yes, let's allow the kids to go back. Uh, but you look at the situation as an, as, an, as an average of the entire country, and it's, it's divisive. We don't see uh, a lot of unanimity here to the idea of bringing kids back to school. Here in British Columbia, the level of support is 53%, but the level of disagreement is 39%. That's two out of five uh, residents of, of BC, uh, many of them parents who are saying, I'm just not comfortable with this happening right now. Uh, were you surprised that there's such a range in those responses? It was a little bit surprising because, you know, most of the anecdotal evidence that we've had was, you know, the notion of this effectively stopping schools from working the way they should caught a lot of people off guard. Uh, you have a lot of people who are dissatisfied with the type of learning that their kids get when they were at home. And there's also the added uh, financial pressures of this. You know, there are houses where the two, a, 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 where there's two a, a people working. You do not have the time to, to take care of a child. And there's a sense of urgency for many of those parents to send the kids back to school. Uh, but on the other hand, you, know, you don't know what is going to be happening. We've seen some of the reports out of Quebec uh, related to some of the outbreaks that have happened in schools. And that is definitely making people uneasy. You know, it's, it's essentially being asked... Uh, to choose uh, the best of two situations that are not ideal. Hmm. And just to go back to, to masks again, because it is top of mind for a lot of people, uh, you found the breakdown in this as well, different uh, between men and women, and also age groups. Yeah, the age groups were quite interesting. You know, we have only 10% of Canadians over the age of 55 who would not like uh, the masks to be mandatory, 7% for those aged 18 to 34 um, there's a little more resistance uh, from Generation X. If you're age 35 to 54, 16% saying, I don't think this should be mandatory. Uh, but it's interesting, over the course of the past six months, as we have been walking through this pandemic, we've gone through all three age groups being sort of the culprits. You know, we saw a lot of people over the age of 55 that weren't wearing masks and didn't care about it. We talked a lot about the millennials who were having parties on the beaches and essentially spreading this around. And now it's Generation X that is essentially saying, well, it's my problem if I want to wear a mask or not. So um, now we are the ones who are going to get it, not the millennials or the baby boomers. All right. Uh, Mario, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing the findings with us. My pleasure, Jill. Anytime. Thanks for being with us today. Well, Vancouver's mayor, Kennedy Stewart, has introduced a number of options. And the goal is to provide emergency relief for Vancouver's homeless residents. And the mayor is actually going to be on the Linda Steele Show this afternoon. But right now, we are going to check in with the NPA Vancouver City Councillor, Sarah Kirby-Young. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Happy Hi. Post-Labor Day. 
<laughs> yes, uh, getting back into, uh, it seems a bit busier out there today. Uh, uh, this has just been released. Um, I don't know if you got a chance uh, to look at it, uh, an advance uh, peek at this before it was released. But can we talk a little bit about what the mayor has put forward? So some of the ideas, he's asking staff to investigate the feasibility and the costs of things like leasing or purchasing housing units, including hotels, SROs, and other available housing stock. Um, that, that, what's your response to that one? Is that something that you think could be feasible? So I, I'm, I'm just looking at it now, and um, I, I think uh, media, and I think you got a copy of it before council did. It hasn't been shared by the mayor with council yet. He did mention that uh, his chief of staff on Friday, he was looking at doing something and advised he'd circle back with council on what that would be. But um, I think he's gone ahead and, and released this um, at this point. Um, in terms of your question around options, I think we have to really step back and not look at this as a partisan issue. It's a human issue. Um, and area residents are looking for relief, and it's not um, a safe and tenable situation for people in the camp either. But I do think it's really important um, that everybody work together, and that includes councillors and the mayor. So I'd like to see more collaboration and discussion around these options before we end up with a formal motion. Um, but I also think there needs to be discussion and collaboration with the other partners um, on the senior levels of government and not just a call, you know, decision by council to sort of elect to move forward with the strategy and then a call after to the other levels of government for funding. I think that that should be part of the conversation up front and that should be a collaborative discussion. Because the last line in his release, the, the, the therefore be it resolved that a G is, it says on behalf of council, the mayor requests federal and provincial funding to cover all associated costs for implementation of any or all of the options city council approves. So I mean, what is the point of that? So city council can then come up with its kind of dream plan or its wish list, but isn't it then what we've heard before is it's all whether or not other levels of government are going to fund it? Well, exactly. And that's what I'm fearful of is that this will be one more call, um, one more lobby call for additional funding as opposed to a really meaningful discussion around what would all parties around the table who have to work together on this support and think it's going to be the most effective strategy in the immediate term for immediate relief for people in the area um, and in the medium and the longer term. I personally, and you know, I've said this on, on, your, on your show before, favor to provide immediate relief, a really expanded shelter program. Um, and I think looking at multiple locations there and working with partners at BC Housing to ramp up what typically happens in the wintertime, we ramp up shelter beds. That's something um, that we do as the cold weather comes in, but to really dial that up and the magnitude of it and take an emergency response approach um, given the fact that COVID-19 has really exacerbated the situation makes a lot of sense. But I'd like to know first, before getting these options back and council choosing one, if that's something that um, the province and BC Housing feel is a workable strategy and would support. Because one of the other option is establishing a temporary emergency relief encampment on either vacant, public or private land. Does that seem like a solution? Um, I think encampments are, are really tricky. I think everybody's. I think we've got to be open to all different options, um, unless those encampments are really well supported with the wraparound supported services. Um, a lot of the past research shows that they can be problematic. Our city staff have um, briefed council and recommended against setting up encampments of that nature. Um, I don't believe that BC Housing is particularly supportive of that. And then I think you have to weigh the cost of what's the speed to get something like that up and running and what's the the dollar cost relative to another option like a dramatically expanded shelter program. Um, And so I'd like to be able to have that information to make it in in a very quick way because time is important here to provide relief, as I said. 
but to make an informed decision as to which is which is the better strategy of the two. And it also says to look at temporarily converting city-owned buildings into emergency housing or shelter space, which sounds more like kind of what you're talking about. Are there city-owned buildings that are currently empty, or is that talking about, do you think, going to, say, community centres or city-owned buildings and taking them over? It could potentially be community centres. Again, important to understand what the mayor might mean by that. I, You know, he hasn't discussed this directly with me, so I'd like to better understand that as we're at a point where we're opening community centres and those are much needed for people's mental and physical well health in the city. But why only city-owned buildings? Why not um, city and provincial or federal locations if we work together with our other partners? There may be other options available to us. Uh, with this then going to staff, or, or I, I guess the idea, the motion, if it's approved, asking staff to, to get back on this, I think it was by October 2nd or early October. Uh, is that enough time, do you think, if, if, if a solution is agreed upon? And again, then telling the federal and provincial governments, we also want you to pay for this entire thing. Is that enough time to actually get something done before we see Vancouver's winter weather hitting? Well, I do think that we need to move quickly. Um, you know, so I, I, I am, I, I do fully agree with that. And I mean, this is an emergency for the residents of Strathcona. They've really been feeling it. We've seen crime and disorder issues ramping up in the community that, in that community, and they are at their wit's end. Um, but we also know that the longer that encampments like Strathcona continue, there are safety and crime risks to people that are staying um, in the encampment as well. So um, we have to move quickly. Um, I think the question really is around not coming out with a solution that the other levels of government are not going to be able to support with the necessary wraparound services um, or with funding if, if we're not aligned in terms of what is the right way to go. And do you think that, that we know enough, and, and we talk a lot about the Strathcona camp and the fact that it's growing and there are hundreds of people uh, living there. We've also seen this happening in Victoria. There was a, a drug trafficking ring that was busted in the camp outside of Victoria City Hall. Uh, you've mentioned crime. Uh, do we even know at this point, uh, I, mean, I mean, there are some of the most vulnerable people living in that camp that need help. They need supports. They need medical help. They need housing. Do we know even what we're dealing with as far as the people who who need this help, people who are preying on people that are in this camp, uh, people that are that are that are doing the criminal acts associated with this, do we have an idea on on what exactly is the breakdown in that camp? We don't, um, and we're missing some of that information because the camp has not been welcoming to city staff to enable them to go in and do an assessment of who is there, how many housing units are needed, what type of services and support. Um, do people require? So we don't have a good handle really on, on, on that yet, unfortunately. And so at this point, it's, it's guesstimation in terms of numbers and, and type of support. So do you think, is there, an, if these three terms, the, the, the city staff go out and report back on these three ideas, these three options, maybe they come back and say, yes, some form of all three is good, one and three, two and three, if they come back with some some recommendation, and you mentioned two, and I, I think people will agree, it's not a partisan issue, it's an issue of how do we deal with a very serious situation. Will there be the will or is there the will to find that solution? Uh, I think that there's a great will by this council to provide some relief and they're hearing loud and clear that the stress cone situation is untenable. I think how we get there is going to be the conversation and I would like to see that happen with council up front because, um, you know, if the majority council decided to pursue the purchasing temporarily hotels, for example, that's a huge undertaking and city council are not in the business of delivering social services, um, you know, in terms of mental health and that's the Ministry of Health. 
um, that's doing that. Um, and supportive housing is very well provided by BC Housing. So I, I worry about doing something that would cost tens and tens of millions of dollars. And at this point, honestly, we'll have to take money away from other priorities. We don't have enough money in sanitation and cleanliness. So yes, this is urgent. And yes, we need to move forward, but we need to let the different levels of government bring their best expertise and their roles to the table. And this is all happening as well uh, with with the information uh, that was released just a couple of days ago, the, the CMHC uh, information looking at the federal funding for uh, affordable housing, however you define affordable housing, in that BC gets a very small percentage, certainly nothing nothing even close to what it needs currently. Yeah, I think that was distressing and, and I think that it is an opportunity and it did shine a spotlight on the fact that there is funding there that hasn't made its way forward. Um, to BC. So again, you know, let's, you know, maybe we can evolve this proposal. I, I don't think it's structured the way that I'd like to see it coming from the mayor into a, an actual proposal through to the feds that would be successful in securing that funding that's not coming through. Um, and hopefully with the spotlight on the fact that BC has got far less than our share, um, we'd be able to make that happen. When do you think or do you know when council will discuss this? I don't know. The mayor has not shared that with council yet. Um, he has the ability to put it on to an upcoming council agenda. Council has our first meetings back next week. He also has the ability to call a special meeting on 48 hours notice. So um, I, I think like you, we will wait to hear what the mayor is deciding to do. I think that's, oh, now that I'm looking at it, the, the, I think it was in the, the first line. So it looks like he's calling in a, a special council meeting for September 11th. Oh, good to know. <laughs> All right. Well, my guess is uh, we will chat with you uh, on that day or perhaps September 12th uh, again, if you're available. Uh, Sarah Kirby-Young, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks. I'd, like to, I'd love to catch up after that meeting and talk about how it went. All right. Thanks for being with us. So we have been talking a lot about long-term care facilities, especially as we are now seeing more cases of COVID-19 and worried, rightfully so, about what's going to happen in the coming fall and winter months. Well, Dan Levitt is joining me on the line again, the CEO of Tabor Village. Dan has been on the program before and he's recently written a piece about asking the question, is it time to transform long-term care? Dan, thanks so much for being with us. Great to be here again. Um, what do you, when you ask the question, what are you thinking of, or what would that transformation look like? Well, I think the transformation really comes around um, how we as a society value um, old people. Um, what are old people for in society? And I think if we shift around looking that um, at the end of life or towards you know, our, our later decades in life, that those decades are as important and those people are as valued in our society as younger people and middle-aged people, and that personally we even look ahead to old age as a, a, a new segment of, of, of our life that we're looking forward to. I think that would change um, our perception a lot of, of age care. And I do believe that as the industry has made huge advances in the past few decades, but I really think that the spotlight that has been focused on aged care as a result of COVID-19 and of the tragedies that we've seen, I think it's now an opportunity for a society to really get behind um, aged care and transform it to a better way of caring for seniors, in particular, um, the, the structures of where people are living and the kind of living environments that they're, they're housed in and that it feels more like your house than it does like a hospital, and that we have more resources available in terms of staffing to support seniors in care. There has been a lot of talk about or comparisons made about publicly funded or subsidized care and privately owned care facilities. Do you think it's fair to compare those two? 
Well, it's a very good question around just generally as Canadians, um, do we accept profit making in healthcare? And it is something we've seen across the board in various aspects um, of healthcare. Um, certain professions, um, like physicians, are are themselves. You know, many of them are independent contractors. So we have to think about um, what is the role of of uh, Profit making in healthcare, and certainly around seniors' care, as you point out, and your question is, um, is it appropriate? And I think maybe I, I'll let the listener uh, make that decision. But I think if, if you start looking at um, instead of perhaps comparing um, those sites that have had outbreaks um, that are for-profit or non-profit or government-owned or operated or society-based, I think the question I would really like to focus on more is on what kind of style of of leadership or what kind of care model they have, or perhaps even um, what is the, the, the living environment like. And um, I'm certainly a proponent of the idea of, of um, demolishing um, the, the old age institutions that appear more like hospitals and having that renaissance around rebuilding homes that feel like a house where you might have uh, maybe a dozen people living together or even less. Um, and we've seen that in different jurisdictions. There's a greenhouse model uh, that's very popular in the United States and looking at the village concept. Um, can, I know we're, we're building one in Comox area and um, Heather um, at uh, the, the St. Vincent site um, in Vancouver and, of course, the Langley site um, is a dementia village. So how are those villages, how do they help and promote well-being of seniors? And I think um, there's much to be um, said and learned about that in the future. How can we change that living environment for seniors for the better? And do you think, too, I mean, unless you have somebody who lives in a care facility or you, or you have first-hand knowledge of it, my guess is you probably don't know exactly what it looks like because there is such a huge difference between if we're talking about a retirement community, if we're talking about assisted living, and the very different levels of care that people need. Yeah, and, and it's something working in the industry, and, and perhaps um, if you're reporting on, on this as well, um, it might seem like it's something that really is a hot topic and everyone is touched by it, and many people are not touched by it at all. In fact, if you look at the, the average person um, does not need care in their lifetime, but usually if you live to be um, 85 or older, uh, one in three will require care, and the other third of the population is caring for that person in care, but the, the rest of the people, the other third, never actually require care. But there, there are different um, envi- living environments, and um, the complex care, the, the, the classic nursing home, is becoming um, more of hospice or palliative care because the length of stays are much shorter, and it does require a different model of care than we might have um, perhaps seen in, in media or representations in, um, in the movies or TV shows. We're now looking at um, a, a whole different model that really is looking at end-of-life care, and certainly the people who are moving in are older, sicker, frailer, and they require a whole another level of care. And is it, I mean, whenever we're talking healthcare, whether you're talking about a portion of the system that's for profit or not, it does come down to money. And the reason that there is kind of the warehousing or that facilities have been built this way is for efficiency, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the housing, the, the more home-like model sounds great, but it also sounds more expensive. Yeah, and I don't think it has to be, though. I think if, if you, one of the things that we've experienced through COVID, unfortunately, is the loss of family members. The family visitation, um, sure, we, our, our first thought about this is, is that a husband and wife are no longer able to see each other and to touch each other that they've done since, since the, probably their, their first, their few, first few dates. And decades later, we, we hear those stories of families, um, especially end-of-life stories. Those are all the critical stories we need to think about. But the actual um, um, introduction um, of a family member into the life of a senior is incredibly significant for the staff members. Um, they're part of that care team, and and uh, 
um, that, that does help with, if you will, the efficiency of time for staff so that staff can focus on, on specific things that only staff members can do and the family can support them in other ways. And, of course, volunteers. Losing volunteers has also made a huge impact um, th- through COVID. So I think um, how, we, how do we um, engage with uh, visitors and with volunteers and the public? Certainly that we've lost that opportunity because of COVID. And you, you mentioned things like the Dementia Village and these different types of models, and I know they've been tried or, or been established in other countries as well. Do you think that Canada is in a position or that is something that we will see here? I do think so, and we are seeing them. The challenge right now is, is in British Columbia. We, we don't have one that is yet funded, and I think when we do have um, the new village that's going to open up on the island but from Providence Healthcare, um, I believe that we're going to see... Um, a new model, and I think we're going to see some some groundbreaking kind of through that barrier where where government funds will be used um, to support a village and the small household concept. And I think then, you know, to your question around, um, can we afford to do it? I don't. I think it's really a matter that um, as an individual society, are we willing to put more of our social safety net around seniors who require that extraordinary level of care? And as individuals, those people who can afford to pay more for their care. Um, are they willing to do so? And there's different financial instruments, um, insurance um, policies that might be available. And certainly if you have, um, if you're willing to, if you have the, um, the resources to pay for the capital cost of the building as they have done in Australia, um, we've had a whole rebirth of, of new um, facilities and communities that have come up from the fact that they've introduced more money to pay for, for these buildings. So I, I'm really hopeful that um, at the same time with the um, government initiatives um, um, to, with the economy around COVID, that we're going to see some of that infrastructure money move towards rebuilding the outdated homes that some of them are over half a century old. And do you think we've learned lessons as far as the response to, to COVID-19 and with the the biggest percentage of deaths being in long-term care facilities. I mean, these are facilities that to already know how to deal with flu season in that you have to wear, I mean, this was pre-COVID, you had to wear a mask if you didn't have a flu shot. Everybody in the facility got a flu shot if you were somebody living in the facility. And unfortunately, every year, some people do die of, of that virus as well. Have we learned, do you think, because of this pandemic, or will there be permanent changes because of the pandemic? Well, I really think that, yes, I think this is that tipping point uh, for our industry where, um, like you say, in the past, um, there were some things that we were doing around infection control for influenza, and we think we did a phenomenal job, but we haven't made vaccinations mandatory. And I think that would be something we should be wrestling with as, as an industry, as a society, as workers. Are we willing to have everyone comply? And those people who can't for health reasons or for other reasons, um, they do have to take a Tamiflu if there's an outbreak. And the mask wearing is um, it's prescribed, but it's, it's not enforceable, um, which is unfortunate. And same thing with visitors. So the influenza does come into aged care, and uh, people do die from it, and we do have spread of it. And uh, so I'm, I'm praying that um, from our experience with um, the great safety measures that we put in place from public health, um, that we're going to see less cases of influenza. And I think the biggest thing that we're going to see perhaps more and more of, and we've already seen some um, at Tabor and in, in BC, is this, the psychological support. Um, if you think about PPE, um, the masks, the goggles, the gloves and gowns, um, we need the same kind of PPE for our well-being. And um, how are we going to help um, create a more resilient workforce? They're already phenomenally resilient, but there's only so much um, our frontline workers can do. So how do we support them more for their, their mental well-being and be more realistic around expectations and, and uh, how we can make sure that, that we're in it for the long run. 
All right, Dan, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jill. Pleasure.